ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day and welcome to another week of Late Night Live coming to you from from Gadigal country. Tonight, a mingle with tingle, the aura of Laura. And this will be followed by a story on the Atlas Network. Now, this is a a quite amazing and many would feel totally alarming story about a a vast network of as many as 600 right-wing think tanks linked across the world with tentacles in to Australia. They've had a profound effect on issues like, well, climate policy, foreign policy, and may have played a significant part in the recent uh, victory of no over yes for the referendum. And then our third course concerns avocado, and it's about a militia dedicated to being anti avocado. You only could hear something like that on Late Night Live. But it wouldn't be Monday if we didn't have our mingle. And Laura is back. Uh, We've seen today, Laura, six, six former PMs signing a letter condemning the October 7 attacks by Hamas and uh, religious hatred and calling for humanitarian supplies to be allowed into Gaza. Paul Keating didn't sign. He didn't, Philip. And uh, he released a statement over the weekend saying that um, he wouldn't be, you know, that there'd been a story that suggested that he would be signing it and he put out a statement saying that he wouldn't be um, and he made it clear in that that that, that essentially he'd been asked to sign a statement that had been uh, drafted by the Zionist Federation, uh, which he uh, portrayed as condemning the attack by Hamas on Israel um, and sort of said that he wouldn't be agreeing to do that. Now, I think... The implication is quite clear that he wasn't going to be signing somebody else's, you know, draft of a statement, uh, because um, you know the, the the rest of the statement, while it is condemning Hamas, um, it does talk about the implications of um, of the attack uh, of October seven as being one that essentially went on to uh, lead to it talks about that uh, about anti-semitism but he also but it also talks about um, the impact on um, the Australian Palestinian community uh, but essentially frames um, the what has happened in Gaza as being a result of Hamas's actions and sort of essentially says the Hamas uh, terrorists essentially sought to provoke Israel into what's happened in Gaza so um, I think it's it's interesting that by not signing it, he's made it more of an issue, if you like, than it would be otherwise. But uh, well, that's that's very poor, isn't it? And so, we, yes, from John Howard, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, even Scott Morrison. Okay, now today, Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong has. Uh, also urged Israel to listen to the calls to protect civilians. And uh, Mm. we're starting to see perhaps a different tone emerge from uh, government members. Uh, Well, I think we are. I mean, I suppose uh, it's it's of a piece in a way, Philip, um, that uh, you've got um, this distinction that's happened. I mean, there's two things that are happening. One of them is that um, the day-to-day story is changing. Obviously, at the beginning of this confrontation, the horror was on what had happened in Israel, these really absolutely appalling and atrocious uh, actions by Hamas and possibly others against Israelis um, in, in incursions into Israel. But now we're just having this uh, uh, increasing, increasingly terrible story about uh, civilians in uh Gaza, uh, you know, 
you know, there's always disputes about how many people are killed, but without a doubt, um, the, sort of the non-government agencies are sort of confirming that there's huge numbers of people and huge numbers of children being killed in this. Um, these estimates of, uh, you know, maybe half the, um, the the residential accommodation in parts of Gaza being knocked out. And so the the focus obviously changes there. But at a political level, it's gone from being about just uh, condemnation of Hamas to, as you sort of suggest, um, an increasing number of government MPs expressing their concern about this, uh, about what's happening in, um, to the Palestinians. It started with Ed Husik and Anne Ali. Uh, it escalated with Tony Burke using much stronger la- language, I think, on Friday. And then we've seen in amongst that... Um, Penny Wong's statements increasingly becoming more uh, assertive, shall we say, in urging Israel to, uh, you know, be, can restrain itself and to let let uh, humanitarian aid through, and to be careful about how it was actually seeking to respond to the the threat of Hamas. Um, so, it's a really interesting. Uh, development, a really interesting change in language and in position for Australia because... Well, talking about position for Australia, mm. Wong was, of course, talking about the UN General yep. Assembly vote. Yes. 120 countries, including France and New Zealand, voted for an immediate humanitarian truce. Mm. But we were one of 45 countries, including the UK, Germany, India and Canada, that abstained. Why? Well, once again, Philip, it's this thing that we we want we won't we won't just talk about one side. We want to talk about the other. Um, our representative at the UN was saying, uh, "Well, you know, we have to talk about um, uh, both sides here." Um, that um, James Larson, who's our representative at the UN, was saying uh, that uh, we abstained um, with disappointment because it failed to recognise Hamas as the perpetrator of the October seven attack. So. Um, Australia is not prepared to condemn what's happening um, in uh, Gaza or express sympathy with Gaza without always acknowledging what's happened uh, in Israel. And so as a result, the government's under attack from the left and the right, if you like. Um, the Greens are attacking it for not uh, for abstaining from uh, this resolution, whereas the, the coalition under Peter Dutton has been pretty steadfast from the beginning in really only focusing on what has happened to Israel from Hamas and talking about terrorists. Now, Albo's just returned from his uh, US visit where he's, uh, well, been talking about shared values and, I quote, of freedom, peace and equality. What do you think of his choice of words, given the situation? Uh, Well, um, it's always interesting to watch Prime Minister's go to Washington and get the treatment, isn't it? Um, um, look, I think it's interesting because uh, I think the Prime Minister was in this interesting uh, sort of triangulation of uh, uh, on, in terms of his language where, on the one hand, he's in Washington where at a time when the democracy isn't quite functioning, let's be perfectly frank, there wasn't a Speaker of the House uh, of, in Congress and when there was one elected, it was someone who'd been very supportive of uh, Donald Trump's position in sort of suggesting that uh, that there hadn't been a valid election result. So he's talking about democracy and freedom and all those things in in a place where, when you take the um, the shine off Washington, things are all pretty unstable. Uh, he's there because, uh, well, he's not there because, but he's there at a time when he's about to head to China, when he's trying to re-establish relationships with China, but is doing everything possible to send messages to the rest of the world that we are in thick with uh, America on a whole range of fronts uh, because we can't talk about uh, the submarines because they're held up in the Congress, which isn't functioning. He's talking about a range of other agreements which are all about making Australia and the US less reliant on China. Uh, and at the same time, we've got all of this uh, backdrop of the horrors in the Middle East um, to contend with as well. As you know, I've got a long-term concern about uh, the plight of Julian Assange. And uh, in our last chat, I hoped that uh, that Joe might that uh, that Biden might be confronted on the Assange issue by the PM, and apparently he did raise it at last. 
Yes, he did say he'd raised it. Um, he says that he has raised it on previous occasions, but essentially he's saying, look, it's not up to the president to decide these things because there is a division between the executive and the judiciary. Um, but he, at the same time, he's saying, well, um, you know, our diplomats are looking for uh, are working towards a pardon um, for Assange or some sort of plea deal at least, you know, at with lower lower at lower levels than the president. So I'm not quite sure how that works if it doesn't work at the presidential level that you, you, you lobby, but certainly um, he did raise it and he said he has raised it before but and, and that his language on this hasn't changed. But obviously on a state visit when there's so much focus on what they're talking about, that's the, the highest elevation you've we've seen yet of the Assange issue. You will remember very early on in his prime ministership, he warned us against what he called trumpet diplomacy. Now, off to China, as you say, how has he... How has he been navigating the optics around our strong alliance with the US and Australia's desire not to risk China trade? Well, it's interesting, Philip. I mean, if you think about it, the Chinese have um, backed down on a range of issues, um, the trade issues like barley and wine. Um, they, uh, we've seen the uh, release of Chung Lai, um, the Australian journalist. Um, so there seems to be... The, the ambition of the government is essentially one of stabilising the relationship um, and rather than sort of necessarily improving it any further, shall we say. So um, he goes to China next week having really, you know, once once again linked, linked us in, in all sorts of possible ways that he could think of to the Americans. Um, but I think this will be one of the really interesting questions to f- ponder uh, ahead of his trip and during his trip the extent to which, you know, what's going on in China has changed the dynamics one way or t'other. Um, you know, obviously they've got a lot of uh, internal economic uh, issues going on. Um, that's not to say that that's necessarily going to soften their position on things, but um, the Chinese have obviously decided that, you know, they've, they've made their point with Australia and it's time probably for them to stabilise, in inverted commas, the relationship. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Laura, we've talked about our blast from the past Prime Ministers signing that uh, joint declaration. We've also got a blast from the past Foreign Minister in Downer weighing in on the submarine issue. Can you talk to that briefly before I let you go? Oh, yes. Uh, Alexander Downer's uh, basically sort of said that AUKUS is a really silly idea or at least the idea of... Uh, submarines being built in Adelaide was never going to happen and uh, and was all a bit of a joke. I, I, I could be wrong. I don't remember him saying that at the time, Philip, but that was when Scott Morrison announced it. Maybe it's just... You a, didn't get the memo, Laura. <laughs> or he's, he's forgotten the memo, one or the other. Yeah, OK. Well, how extraordinary that he weighs in at this point. Look, thanks for that. Laura Tingle, of course... Chief Political Correspondent, 7.30, and she'll be back with me in a week's time. And uh, coming up, well, we've just been speaking about Alexander, who happens to be Chair of Trustees of a think tank called Policy Exchange. But who are these mysterious think tanks? And, very importantly, who funds them? You're about to find out. In recent years, beloved listener, there's been an explosion, global explosion of think tanks of all types. Some are upfront about their agendas, some claim to be independent, some are open about their funding sources and others, well, much more reticent. But today, I'm going to tell you about a network of think tanks that uh, you're probably not aware of. It's called the Atlas Network and it partners with at least 500, repeat, 500 think tanks globally. Some of them, uh, some of the think tanks get funding from Atlas and others get grants or, or training opportunities. In the studio with me is Dr Jeremy Walker and Jeremy has been, um, well, researching the history of Atlas 
and what this think tank group have been achieving in terms of policy influences across the globe, particularly in the areas of, surprise, surprise, climate communications and more recently the campaign for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Jeremy is a senior lecturer in social and political sciences just across the road at the University of Technology, Sydney, and is the author of More Heat Than Light, The Tangle Roots of Ecology, Energy and Economics, published by Palgrave. And uh, thanks for coming into the studio. What the hell is the Atlas Network? Australians, uh, your our listeners today, they'll, they'll be aware of certain free market think tanks which are very visible in Australia, or very noisy, we might say, in particular the Institute of Public Affairs based in Melbourne. Um, perhaps less well-known is the Centre for Independent Studies, which now has offices uh, a block down from the New South Wales Parliament, and there are other organisations as well which may be even lesser known, um, Liberty Works, um, the, which recently hosted the far-right Conservative Political Action Conference, um, or until recently hosted them. And um, other organisations, there is the Mankell Institute in Perth, um, the Australian Taxpayers Association, the Australian Libertarian Society. If we go over the... I, I know of quite a few yeah, of those, you know but I didn't recognise that they were connected. I see. Okay, so well, what the Atlas Network is, is basically there's two ways in which we can understand what that means. First of all, um, the Atlas Network refers to the entire constellation of free market, they call themselves free market think tanks. And it also refers to the an actual organisation which was founded in 1981 called the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, which now is headquartered by the campus of George Mason University, um, not far from the US capital. And so the term refers, uh, can refer on the one hand to that, that, that organisation, which was registered in Delaware, which is of course a tax um, and financial secrecy. Uh, it's the, the, the most secret of the tax jurisdictions in the US. It was registered there in 1981. Or it can refer to the entire constellation of think tanks that affiliate with it. So. Uh, in 2020, the Atlas Network website listed 515 think tanks in more than in a, in a hundred countries. Uh, they've now <laughs> taken that list off, and so currently they say they've created another whole 70 just this year. So the number is around 600 in at least 100 countries. Okay, tell us about uh, Anthony Fisher, please. Okay, so Anthony Fisher is a was a um, I guess a member of the uh, upper middle class, the elite class in in England. He was born to a family of mine owners and uh, soldiers, uh, politicians, I believe. He attended the elite schools of Eton, looking across to Windsor Palace and uh, Cambridge. Um, he was a pilot in World War II. And when the Labor Party was elected in 1945 uh, with its beverage plan to bring in, you know, uh, cradle-to-grave welfare, to nationalise coal, gas, uh, railways, steel production... Um, this sent him into a shock and he went to Frederick Hayek, uh, the founder of the Montpelerin Society and the uh, most famous philosopher of the neoliberals, and Hayek said to him, um, don't bother about going into politics. He was contemplating a career as a conservative MP. He said, what you need to do is change the ideas of the teachers, the lecturers, the journalists. So target the elites. Not so much the elites, but what Hayek referred to as the secondhand dealers in ideas. So the people who create and reproduce the, the normal values of society. Hayek himself served the elites. He came from a class of Austrians, upper-class Austrians, who basically fulfilled these uh, major administrative positions for the real elites, that is, the aristocracy. And, um, yeah. And I understand early funding came from uh, oil companies. This is true, yeah. So Hayek's early um, earliest career, he worked with his mentor Ludwig von Mises, uh, another radical far right liberal um, in Austria, who ran the business, uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna, and they started a thing called the Austrian 
Business Cycle Research Centre, which was financed by the Rockefeller Foundation, which is uh, was Standard Oil, um, now ExxonMobil. And the Rockefeller Foundation also financed uh, a whole lot of uh, positions at the London School of Economics, where Hayek ended up. And they also founded the early conferences that led to the, the beginning of the neoliberal movement. So Fisher takes his uh, think tank model, global, to mm. the US and to Australia. You talk about connections with the Koch brothers, for example. Yeah, so uh, Fisher established the first neoliberal think tank. It's called the Institute of Economic Affairs, still extremely influential. And the trick of it was that... Um, that the funding was never disclosed, right? Um, and we know now that the earliest big funders, so that was founded in 1955, um, the year after Fisher joined the Mont Pelerin Society. And it, as far as we know, the early, the first big corporate funders that came on board in the early 60s were Shell and BP. And by the mid-70s, the funders list looked like basically the backbone of the British commercial empire. So you had all the big banks, you had Rio Tinto and Shell, probably the biggest funders. All the American oil companies were involved, um, mining companies, banks. And in Australia, I understand Rupert was an early funder? Um, well, we have to look uh, go a little bit further back because the we look at the Institute of Public Affairs, which was founded beforehand in 1943, and um, we need to go even further back to the huge uh, mining monopoly and media monopoly called Collins House in the early 20th century in Melbourne. So Collins House, um, they, were the f they had a piece of nearly every mining deal in Australia and uh, they founded Western Mining Corporation, um, Electrolytic Zinc and Broken Hill Associated Smelters and so on. Um, and they, um, as has been revealed by Sally Young in her book Paper Emperors, um, from detailed archival research, they uh, Collins House through various proxies went up buying all these mining, uh, buying buying newspapers in mining company towns, um, and tilting the editorial against the mining unions and against the labour and against you know, and so they consolidated all these into uh, a company called News Limited in Adelaide, and then eventually uh, Keith Murdoch, who ran the Herald and Weekly Times Group, which they owned, was then assisted to acquire the ownership of News Limited, and um, so. And, and they said so, you know, in their own internal communications that the purpose of this was to do propaganda against the, uh, to do propaganda for the public and against the, the workers uh, in the mines. And finally, in 1981, he, um, he starts the network that would link all these organisations. This is true, yeah. So um, Fisher's having an enormous uh, success with the um, IEA in, in, in London, the Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, in 1970, he's invited to the US to do a tour with an organisation called the Institute of Humane Studies, which was trying to import this radical uh, far-right libertarian ideology for the Austrian school, uh, von Mises and, and Hayek. And the key sponsor and, and uh, organiser of that was Charles Koch, right? So he does a tour in 1970 and he teaches American businessmen this method, the think tank method, and he's saying, you, you know, this, so this is, we have this, all these social movements out there, the, you know, stop the war movement, the environmental movement, um, you have quite, you know, radical labour. And he says, you've got to fight back and the way to do it is you start up an institute, um, it's called research, so it's tax deductible, and then we get these scholars who are all from the Mpelleran Society, um, and they'll say the things that you want to say and then you can quote this research and we amplify that to the media. So we flood every channel of the media with this research and, um, and that way the public, but the public doesn't know who's paying for it. So obviously if Shell came out and said, you know, we don't think there should be any environmental controls on the petroleum industry, everyone would just laugh and take no notice. But if you have uh, scholars saying the same thing or, you know, journalists saying the same thing over and over again without disclosing the funding then this has a much greater impact. Sitting in the studio with me is Dr Jeremy Walker. <clears throat> now, we've all heard of Mount Everest, Mount Kosciuszko, but I don't know anything about Mount Pelerin. Mm -hmm. So Mount Pelerin is uh, the name of a resort town in Switzerland where the Mount Pelerin Society had its first meeting in 1947. Post-war consensus was, um, you know, on the kind of Keynesian model of uh, the government would manage the economy for full employment, redistributive taxation, progressive taxation, um, welfare and so on like that. Right? This was the consensus both in the national and international level, at least in the West, Western countries. And so what he did was to bring together these uh, liberals that wanted to push back against that. 
Um, but again, Hayek's early earliest uh, you know work and and this, many of the scholars that were brought together there, and it wasn't just scholars; it was statesmen like. Uh, uh, German, German uh, prime minister, and 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 they're also uh, Austrian aristocrats that uh, you know uh, pretenders to the throne. So uh, we're witnessing, in a sense, the birth of neoliberalism. Yes, you could say that. And is John Howard a member? John Howard is a member of the Montpelerin Society. Doesn't that make you proud? Hey, uh, oh, well, it's it's great. kind of interesting because Howard was the first fully neoliberal government that we had in Australia, and. Um, Unsurprisingly, you know, he uh, came to power in a, you know, a fear campaign against Native Title Act and the Mabo decision and the WIC decision, promising him bucket loads of extinguishment. Uh, confessed himself a climate sceptic, refused to ratify Kyoto. Um, I remember it well. Mm. So um, is the Atlas Network, can we peep through the chinks and see funding anywhere? Well, we certainly can um, if we go to the United States where there is uh, the laws around philanthropic foundations. So a lot of very wealthy people uh, in the US park their money in philanthropic foundations um, and also for, you know, tax-deductible charitable organisations or research. So they have to... They have to produce a public form which shows where the money is going. And, and there we can see evidence of, the, say, the Koch brothers or ExxonMobil. Certainly, that's the case. So uh, a very good paper by Robert Brule in 2014, an American scholar, he, he went through all of this. He, he found a list of all of the organisations in the US that were doing climate denial or climate obstruction and then he, they tallied up all of the evidence of, of where the money was coming from, from these big foundations and where it was going to. And nearly all of the organisations that were receiving this money were uh, affiliated with the Atlas Network. And, and the organisations where the money was coming from, um, the ExxonMobil Foundation, the Charles Koch Foundation, the SCAFE Foundation. So it's one big happy extended family. That's correct. And the key issue is to create, they all like to call themselves independent, but we don't, there's not much to suggest that they are really independent of their funding sources, which are not disclosed. And the fact is that they, they work together um, and all of their kind of outputs, even though they're different, kind, they might take different, but apparently different positions on certain issues, um, they all tend to converge on the same um, outcome, which is to, to create the impression that there is a whole lot of independent civil society organisations and researchers um, that want us to, for example, not to have a carbon tax or that climate science isn't real or that there shouldn't be a voice to parliament. Where would we be without them? Now, the lack of disclosure of where outfits like the IPA get their money from is a real issue when they regularly pitch their, their commentators to the media, including here at the ABC. Yes, um, and I think it's very concerning because the whole purpose, the, the, the reason they exist in the first place is to flood the public sphere and every channel of the media with the messages that their corporate funders want to be put out there and, and in a way which makes, that, that creates this sort of, uh, the, the, but we don't know where those messages are coming from. We don't know who funds them. But we do know about the Centre for Independent Studies and this is from uh, Paul Kelly, uh, uh, edit, editor of The Australian, I believe. Um, his classic uh, work, uh, The End of Certainty, so it's his celebration of neoliberal reform through the 80s. And um, he describes the origins of the Centre for Independent Studies. So, um, And again, it's always that uh, what they don't want is that the problem was that the, these big corporations are extremely unpopular with the public. Um, nobody liked them and uh, nobody trusted them, their role in the Vietnam War or in industrial pollution or in attacking workers' rights. So what um, happens is in 1976, John Bernithan, who was at the time the uh, manager of the Adelaide Advertiser, I believe, in the Murdoch Stable, who was also the founder of Santos, the giant gas company, um, which has enormous influence in Australia now. And he invites Fisher out for these uh, series of private meetings with uh, very wealthy private individuals, many of them connected with mining, and to pitch this idea of we need an Australian Institute of Economic Affairs in 1976. Now, the funding comes on board uh, a couple of years later, and the funding comes from um, Santos, 
from Shell, the global oil company, which operates in nearly every country in the world and uh, was an early uh, founder of the funder of the Institute of Economic Affairs and has funded many, many other think tanks around the world where we have that information. Um, Shell Rio Tinto, which was also the biggest funder of the IEA, one of them, um, and BHP and Western Mining Corporation, um, headed by Hugh Morgan. So the key players in the foundation of the CIS were uh, John Bernithan, Hugh Morgan, who was an international mining politics guy, and uh, Maurice Newman, who incidentally is also one of well, the Well, he's to the round kicking up dust and making trouble. Yes. Tell um, me, open for me rather, the Overton window. Uh, the Overton window. So you may have heard about the Overton window. Uh, people have talked about this, about the way, how do we shift public opinion? And the Overton window is a, was in fact, interestingly enough, developed by the Atlas Network itself, okay? So Joseph Overton was a think tank staffer um, with the Mackinac Centre, another Atlas think tank in the US, and he described, uh, and this I know from a recent article published by Alejandro Chafuin, who was the uh, who was the CEO, uh, the president, sorry, of the Atlas Network from 1991 to 2017. Over the period in which the Atlas Network expands from having perhaps 70 or 80 institutes around the world to its present scale of around 500 or t- you know, even more. Um, so he presided over a huge expansion in the scale of the network in a number of countries that it penetrates and influences. And the Overton window he describes as a process that leads to policy change. So the whole purpose of the Atlas is to change government policy, to change governments and to change what the public thinks. Um, this involves crafting ideological messages that can increase or decrease the number of ideas a politician can support without unduly risking their electoral support. So They'll, they'll publish all kinds of articles you'll have. So, for example, the IPA, if we're talking about climate policy, they'll say climate science isn't real or, you know, we should abolish, uh, we should privatise the ABC. Something is so radical that no one would agree with that. And then you'll have a more moderate think tank like the Centre for Independent Studies, which will say, oh, we think we should not, the government shouldn't pick winners in the energy transition and they should leave it to the market. Their tentacles are everywhere and you describe them reaching out to... Uh, to make life difficult for environmental activists pretty well across the planet. Certainly. I mean, because one of the key catalysts for the formation of the Atlas Network in the in the 80s, so the, the point about the Atlas Network is that the organisation itself, the Atlas Foundation, it was not itself a think tank. It doesn't publish stuff in its own name. It's very quiet about its existence um, and its role is to just create new think tanks. So it networks, it finds money, it finds activists, it finds and trains think tank directors and staff and puts it all together to birth new think tanks and then to to some extent to coordinate international campaigns of which the I would suggest we know that the oil companies were completely on top of climate science going back to the late 1950s. They were always at the forefront of knowing what was going on and by, the, um, by 1981 you have a very clear consensus across the scientific community and within the oil companies themselves that climate change is, is going to be uh, catastrophic. Um, so right from the beginning, we see this uh, effort to discredit environmentalists and environmental science. And if we take that into the present, we see, uh, particularly in the UK, for example, where you have had this very draconian legislation passed recently, um, prompted by an organisation called Policy Exchange. Now, I'm not entirely... Uh, that doesn't appear on the Atlas Network list from 2020, but it does all of the same kinds of things with very similar staff. And what they did was to publish this report saying that Extinction Rebellion, these non-violent protest movements, that sure they get in the way of cars or they might write things on footpaths, that they're they're extremists and terrorists that are taking over and they need to crack down and put well, them Well, I'm astonished and sad to remind the listener that it's Labor governments here in Australia that have passed and are passing laws criminalising environmental protests. It's true, and um, we might look at South Australia where the, lab, where the oil and gas lobby, Appia, held a conference, I believe it was last year, where the um, my resources minister, Madeleine King, said, we are at your service, Labor government, we, we're on your side. And the next day we see um, through the, yeah, this, this legislation being rammed through without any debate, which, which gives, uh, you know, I believe, you know, the potential jail sentences for simply, you know, for very minor 
misdemeanors such as blocking a road or um, something like that. And there's, you know, we have to compare that to the fact that if we look at the tax transparency report from the tax office, I mean, we have companies like Santos, Exxon, Chevron, Peabody Coal paying zero tax in Australia. Okay, finally, The Voice. Despite the uh, no campaign and saying that the uh, Voice campaign was driven by the elites, the no campaign certainly was funded by the elites of the business world. Certainly. Um, look, we don't, I don't know, apart from what's been reported about the funding going to Advance, which was this pop-up unit established uh, in 2018 and 2019, which then ran the entire No campaign featuring Warren Mundine and, and, and Jacinda Price on all their communications. Um, now, this organisation um, was established, if we go back to 2018, you can see on their website that the original board included uh, figures including Maurice Newman and Sam Kennard. Now, uh, Maurice Newman, who you may remember was... A, well, he was the chair of the ABC. Right, in which capacity he said that we should have more people on the ABC that say that climate change... Uh, that dispute the science of climate change. Um, now, just that the, the Newman was one of the founders of the Centre for Independent Studies in 1976 and one of the founders of the Advance uh, Campaign Unit. And the CIS has uh, Price and Mundine as, you know, scholars on their website. But also, you know, Warren Mundine was the chair of an organisation called Liberty Works, another Atlas think tank and so on. In this world of smoke and mirrors, the uh, the board of the Centre for Independent Studies was uh, not unanimous in their opposition to The Voice. Several uh, supported the Yes campaign, including financially, and the CIS say that uh, it was neutral in the campaign and also let the record show mining giants BHP and Rio Tinto publicly supported The Voice, so uh, there was no universal opposition to The Voice from the mining industry. Cogitate upon that, dear listeners, and uh, cogitate on the writings of Dr Jeremy Walker, Senior Lecturer in Social and Political Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. Post-scriptum, we asked the Institute of uh, Public Affairs, the Centre for Independent Studies, and Advance, whether they were connected to the Atlas Network. Advance denies any connection. The IPA neither confirmed or denied, and uh, the Centre for Independent Studies did not respond by airtime. Coming up, how avocado has become a forbidden fruit. The world's insatiable appetite for avocado is uh, coming at a cost, and that cost is increasingly being born by Mexico, where, uh, where the cartels have become involved in this lucrative trade. Journalist Alexander Salmon recently travelled to the front line of the avocado conflict and uh, to one town where avocados have been banned banned for 12 years. He's written about it in a piece for Harper's magazine called Forbidden Fruit, and Alex joins us now to tell us all about it. Welcome to our Little Wilders program. Could you start, Alex, by telling me a bit about the history of the avocado? From where does it orig originate? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, the, the avocado is a is a, a, a very interesting. Uh, it's got a very interesting backstory. It it originates in 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 Mexico by and large, and we can see actually back in the 15th century and 16th century, um, it you know plays an important role in in Aztec cultural lore uh, when the Spanish conquistadors showed up in in uh, 1521. You see them writing about the avocado as this incredible oddity that they're confounded by. Um, but really the avocado is, is, is a modern creation and it's something that, uh, rises to prominence, uh, as a, a food staple really only, uh, in the 20th century. Um, and that starts out, 
because of the California real estate sector. So it, it sort of gets a new life in the early 20th century, um, thanks to the California real estate sector. Uh, and it doesn't really become a, you know, like a real food staple that's, that's sold worldwide, uh, until, uh, you know, 20, 20 or 30 years ago. So it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's got a long and colorful history. I am appalled to learn from you that Hill and Knowlton, uh, the the advertising firm known for its role in the uh, in the United States in the first Gulf War, on behalf of the QOT government, helped rebrand the fruit. Yeah, it's an incredible little footnote in the, in the history of what seems like a. Yeah, uh, something that would it would be so anodyne, but uh, yeah, the fruit actually, you know, it, it really wasn't a it wasn't something that had any any real purchase uh, in the United States or anywhere else until the Avocado Advertising uh, Agricultural Board hired Hill and Knowlton, which um, you know, in a, in a very scandal plagued moment in American history, basically uh, whipped up some falsified testimony to help uh, get the United States into the Gulf War. Uh, on behalf of the Kuwaiti government, so uh, the the company that came up with that strategy also came up with a strategy to get uh, avocados uh, into supermarkets, into grocery stores, into uh, restaurants worldwide. And, uh, and the geopolitics, I think, is actually very salient here. It really was a geopolitical campaign as much as it was anything else. You tell an amusing story about uh, when avocados were used as a gimmick to sell homes in California. Yeah, so so from the very very outset, this is really, I mean, it's it's really a story about advertising. And uh, in the early 20th century, there was this land rush on in California. There were the real estate industry, you know, now an incredibly powerful industry was was trying by any means necessary to to, to keep selling uh, land and homes at these elevated rates. And they decided that uh, that avocados, that selling avocados would be the way actually to convince people to pay more for for land and for houses. And so they, they ran this campaign that said avocado trees, you'll plant them in your backyard and they're so lucrative and so remunerative that they will pay down your mortgage by themselves. Um, and so it becomes part of this, this advertising campaign. It's totally made up. I mean, Americans don't eat avocados. No one even knows how to grow them at scale, but it succeeds for a handful of years in, in convincing people to, to continue buying California. It's, it ends up being a very successful advertising campaign. So most of the avocados eaten in the U.S. and globally are grown in Mexico, are they? Yeah, that's that's more or less correct. Yeah, certainly the vast majority, I think 80% in, in the United States come from this one state in Mexico and around 40 or 50% globally come from uh, that region as well. I should note that uh, according to the uh, peak industry body, Avocado Australia, we don't uh, currently import avocados from Mexico. In fact, we grow most of the avocados we eat here ourselves. Now, what are the avocados, well, why are avocados such a resource-intensive crop to produce, Alex? Yeah, they it's it's an incredibly water intensive fruit, which is I think really fascinating and maybe not known by a lot of people. If you if you look at them across the uh, across the board in terms of agriculture, you, you basically won't find anything any any uh, article of produce that takes more water. So it's you know a pound of almonds, which has obviously the reputation of being so water intensive, uh, oftentimes takes less water than a pound of avocados. If you look at tomatoes, which in you know in the United States you know, are, are blamed for causing the dust bowl in the early 20th century. Uh, avocados take 12 times as much fruit, uh, as, as a, as a single tomato or 12 times as much water, sorry, to, to, to grow as a, as a, as a single tomato. So it's an unbelievably resource intensive, uh, fruit. The, the water I think is the most extreme, but you know, we're also talking about, uh, you know, land and, uh, and pesticides and, and, and everything else. So it's a, it is not, uh, it is not light on the environment to produce, uh, an avocado. Talking to you, I suddenly recall a program we did decades ago, which revealed that the origins of the mafia was, in fact, when they took over the lemon trade in <laughs> in Sicily. So this is a good point to introduce the fact that the cartels are now involved with the avocado. 
Yeah, yeah. So in in recent years, obviously avocados have become incredibly popular, and they've become um, you know more expensive. Uh, and I think because the resources are are harder and harder to come by to grow them, um, you know, it's it's become a very very contested industry. And and avocados uh, in Mexico in this you know they the 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 area where they're grown is really only a hundred mile stretch. It's a very very small region. A um, hundred mile stretch, really. Yeah, it's in, this incredibly compact territory that happens to have, um, you know, this fertile soil, volcanic soil. It's cold, so that the climate is correct, but most importantly, very, very water rich, uh, and at least historically, and that's where the whole industry has concentrated uh, in, in Mexico. One farmer told you that avocados aren't the problem; it's the avocados. It's that the avocados bring greed and corruption. Yeah, that's right, and and I should say that uh, that was, of course, an avocado farmer who who told me that. But I, I think it was very apt because it's uh, you know avocados are something that have been grown at a smaller scale. They're part of Mexican cuisine. Um, that's not what's going on there anymore, right? This is a this is a massive global industry, and um, you know that that's attracted a lot of trouble. Uh, and and you know it's the the cartels, of course, in this area. This is a, an area also incredibly dangerous it's the most dangerous state in mexico uh there are a number of cities in this in this area that rank uh tops in the world for murder rate uh and anyone who's making a lot of money anyone who's you know uh turning a hefty profit like this trade is doing of course is going to attract attention from business interests legal and not so um it's an area right very afflicted by that at, at the current moment i'm talking to alexander salmon who's got a strange tale to tell about avocados. Now I think it's time to take us to the town of uh, Cheran. You describe it as uh, as an eco-democracy. What happened there? Yeah, Cheran is a fascinating little town. It's, it's sort of smack dab in the middle of this 100-mile corridor. Um, and like 12 years ago, they had an issue with municipal corruption and an issue with illegal logging. And, uh, and so the local government was tied in with a cartel group. They had been logging the hills there, these pine forests in the hills, um, illegally. And, and basically the town had this uprising and, and one day said, this is, this is enough. This can go no further. They, uh, they took hostage these loggers. They burned their trucks. They locked down the town. They kicked out the mayor and the and the police force, and and they disbanded the political parties, and uh, basically rewrote a new political charter uh, in in a matter of months. Created a new uh, a new town altogether, uh, and, and reopened with a. Alexander, a, a this is this is a great story. Why doesn't the world know about it? <laughs> well, it's a it's a small indigenous town, uh, you know, in, in the highlands of of uh, the state in western Mexico. So it's not, you know, they don't they don't have the most advanced uh, communication strategy, nor do they have uh, any of the advertising firms that we uh, have have referenced working uh, on their behalf. So uh, you know, it, it takes a little bit to to get there, and uh, and even more, I think, to to learn about it. But to think that they. That they entirely sort of well, they reopen the, with a new state apparatus. Political parties were banned, and uh, governing council, which had been elected, there's a reforestation campaign going on. Heavens above, what a saga! Yeah, it's amazing. And yeah, so the, the state that they basically draw from scratch puts these environmental concerns at the very top of the list, and and so they have this massive reforestation campaign. And they also charter this militia force uh, to ensure that there's no illegal logging, that there's, uh, you know, that there there are basically no ecological crimes being committed. And then, of course, uh, top of mind, they they outlaw the avocado uh, and say that yeah, that, that it won't be grown under any circumstances. And, and they have you know some serious firepower behind ensuring that this uh, that logging, that that uh, uh, the avocado planting, that none of this extractive industry will take place. So they have an anti. Avocado militia force. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, phenomenal. Now, how big is the town? It's about twenty thousand people, um, and the the actual territory is about twenty six thousand hectares. So it's not huge, obviously. Um, 
but it's you know it's also not it's not tiny like this is a real you know this is a real functioning society and it has sort of all the features of uh any uh any any you know any small town you'd see in in, in mexico it's it's a uh, it's you know it's it's not it's not so small that, it, that it's just an oddity this is a functioning a functioning state to be to be sure so just explain to me what does the militia do what is it what are its what are its powers yeah they they so they do all sorts of things they actually as 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 far afield as you know uh uh, punishing like public drunkenness. Like, well, I went out on, uh, I went out on the rounds with, uh, with one of the, uh, dispatches and, you know, the first thing they, they did in the morning was they, they brought in some guy who, who, uh, had been out too late drinking and, and <laughs> brought him to jail. So, uh, that's on one end of the spectrum, but the majority of the work is they're out in the highlands, uh, in the hills, basically trying to ward off the encroaching industry. So all around this town, there's logging going on. There are four, uh, fires being set to clear the pine trees. They're planting of avocado trees. Like it, it's encroaching from all sides. And so their job, basically at this point, is to hold down a a, a, a barrier to to hold down. A, there's a trench line, in fact, that they that they're monitoring at all times uh, and trying to keep the incursion of this industry at bay. And that can take many different forms, obviously, from loggers to cartel groups to fires to you, you name it. Alex, it will shock you to know that some people in Australia illegally grow marijuana out of sight. And I believe that you discovered people are still growing avocados illegally in the town. That's yeah, that's right. It's a big concern as well. And and there are signs everywhere that say, you know, this is this is disallowed, that it will not be tolerated. Uh but of course it does happen. Uh and in, in those cases this uh the, the 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 militia will uh you know if, if they see it they have they have a, a a network of of you know farmers and herders and stuff who report to them with information if they find a tree they'll go and they'll uh, they'll cut it down immediately they'll dig it up uh and the person who's responsible can be fined and if they're found repeatedly to have done this they can actually have their land requisitioned by the state so this is one of the great enforcement powers of this of new political charter is that you can you can lose your land uh, very quickly if you uh, are found to be doing this repeatedly. I understand other towns in the region have attempted to follow this inspirational lead. Any success? Yeah, it's 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 a surprisingly heartening story, actually, in some sense, because there there are twenty six other towns in the in the area. It's this little archipelago, basically, of uh, of resistance to this incredibly powerful industry. Who've embraced this model, and, and some of them have come to it because they, you know, wanted to to stop cartel violence. They wanted to stop municipal corruption, uh, but all of them have embraced this environmental model, and uh, and it has actually been been successful. I mean, it's you know, it's obviously there's small little pockets, but uh, the the towns that I visited had 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 found it to be a, a very successful model for both for protecting the safety of their citizens, but also for protecting the environment and the livelihoods of people there. And um, it is actually a success story in a lot of ways, which I, you know, was both surprising and, and heartwarming to hear. <laughs> now, will the story continue to be important? Oh, absolutely. I think so. Certainly. Uh, the the water crisis that has, that has befallen this area is, is so acute. And obviously, you know, water wars generally is, something top of mind in, in the world, I think, all over the place. And this is a place where it is, I think, a, a leading indicator. It's somewhere where the, the collapse of the water system is so acute, and uh, and I think it's probably only only more to come. Out of time, Alex. Alex uh, Alexander Salmon, political writer for Slate, but has a piece about... Uh, what about avocados appearing in the November edition of Harper's Magazine under the title Forbidden Fruit, and that's all we have time for. On our next, we'll catch up on UK politics. We'll hear about the marine heatwave coming to Australia's shores. See you then. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.